I think there's uh, something about coming together that makes it feel a lot like Christmas to me. There's, maybe it's part of me that just grew up as a church kid, so now I see church services as part of the Christmas tradition, or maybe it's just being together with you who I consider my family, but I hope I'm not the last to wish you a very Merry Christmas. We are really looking forward to what God is going to do in this service, what he's been doing in our church, and I'm really looking forward to sharing a message with you that God really has placed on our hearts. These past few weeks, we've actually been in a series called Jesus is King. And this whole series has been centered around that one thought, that it is actually a reality that Jesus is King. And he has gives himself many different titles, but one of them that we wanted to emphasize this year is Jesus's kingship. Pastor AJ actually started a series a few weeks ago talking about that Jesus is King and actually our need for a King. It's Actually, the reason why Jesus came is because we are not good at ruling ourselves. That the things that, the way that things are is not the way that things are supposed to be. So Jesus comes into the world and he sets things right. The next week we got an opportunity to talk about the kingdom of God. When Jesus comes as king, he actually brings a kingdom. And that kingdom is simply this. The kingdom of heaven is not a matter of eating and drinking, but it's a matter of righteousness, of peace, and of joy in the Holy Spirit. Then last week we got an opportunity to talk about that Jesus is actually the king of our hearts. That when Jesus actually comes to live in the world and rule the world, he actually first wants to rule in our heart. And our heart is the place where we trust Jesus and the place where we love Jesus. All in all, this series has summed up one thought. That it is good news that Jesus Christ is king. It's good news. Because you're not king, you don't have to be. Jesus Christ came and is the rightful and true king of the world and rightful and true king of your heart. And that is good news. Today we're going to finish that series just for the next few minutes that we're together. And we're going to be in Luke chapter 2, verse 10 through 11. And if you would, would you stand with me as we read the Word of God? The reason that we stand in this church when we read the Word of God is we acknowledge the authority of the Scriptures over our lives. And this is a symbolic way that we practically walk that out. In Luke chapter 2, verses 10 through 9, it says this. And the angel said to them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. Simply want to title this message, The King is Here. The King is Here. Would you pray with me for a minute? Lord Jesus, we love you. We thank you, God, that you are here. And Holy Spirit, we welcome you, your bride. Set our hearts right, right now. Realign us for the purpose and why we are here. (laughs) Lord, if you're not glorified in any other place, would you be glorified in this place? And Lord, if you are not glorified in any other heart, would you be glorified in this heart? Father, we love you so much. 
And more importantly, you love us. Holy Spirit, would you empower us to live, look, and love more like Jesus today than we did yesterday. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. You guys can take your seats. Jesus is king, and the king is here. I'm not sure how you see Jesus But it's really important how you see Jesus. We've been talking as a church around this theme of how you see Jesus actually determines how you receive from Jesus. And if you look back in antiquity, when this announcement was given, it was given to people who were under the oppression and the rule of Rome. They knew that a king was coming because there have been prophecies and prophecies about this new son of man who was going to come and rule and save people and deliver them. And Israel had had a few kings up to this point, some all right and some honestly not that good. And when they heard that Jesus was coming, the expectation that Israel and the majority of them had was, well, Jesus is going to be just like the kings that we had before and maybe just a better version of our best kings like David. David, the one who slayed Goliath and introduced this new era of worship unto God, a man known as a man after God's own heart and a man who really won all of these battles and brought Israel into this, this time of peace and prosperity. And Israel said, well, if he's going to be a king, he's probably going to do something like that. He'll deliver us from Rome and he'll bless us so that we were what we always thought that we should be. Now, we might not be tempted to think of Jesus as somebody who's going to free us from an oppressive regime, but we might think of Jesus as potentially um, a good teacher. We might think of him as maybe a moral man. We might think of him as maybe a prophet. Maybe some of us just think of him as like a story or even a myth. But the the way that we see Jesus really correlates to how we receive from Jesus. I want to encourage us with the next few minutes that we're together that we ought not to see Jesus as simply a moral teacher, simply as a prophet, simply as a good man, but I want us to see Jesus as the first angel evangelist said that we should see him, a savior. A savior. Because the way that we see Jesus will always indicate how we receive from Jesus. You see, the angel says a savior has been born. Do you have like a greatest fear? Like a big fear. I actually unlocked a new greatest fear earlier this year. And I'd love to tell you about it. I uh, had the like nightmare that came true a few months ago in my life. I got stuck in an elevator. Yes. Exactly that emotion. It was the worst day of my life. And it's that moment where you like never think it'll happen to you. And you like always have like that irrational fear. Oh, getting stuck in an elevator. That never happens. No, it happened to me. And I want to tell you about it. Maybe for like therapy, maybe for just like venting. I don't know. But it was the worst experience of my life. I was living on the third floor of my apartment. I was going down to the, uh, the, the ground floor. And maybe this is God like punishing me for being lazy, for not taking two flights of stairs. But nevertheless, I'm in this elevator. And all of a sudden, the moment happens where the lights turn off. The elevator drops. And then the emergency lights turn on. And I sit there. And I immediately just go, <laughs> no. 
no. And I'm alone. I'm like, no. And so I'm like looking and, and I do everything that like is so irrational, but just to like prove to myself like this is real. So I start to like push the open door button. And I'm just like, just, just open the door and the door's not opening. And then I push the like alarm button and the alarm is sounding for like three, five minutes and nobody's coming. And I'm like, okay. And then I don't know what I thought I was going to do, but I start like pulling the door open and I'm like, I'm just going to like muscle, you know, when like, like moms of pregnant, like babies, like lift cars. I was like, I'm just going to open the door. And so I like open the door and then like the other doors close. And you remember the movie Final Destination where like people die in wild ways? That's what I thought. I was like, local pastor gets cut in half by an elevator. That's what I thought was going to happen. And so I'm just like opening this door and I'm like, it's locked. I'm actually in between two floors. And so I'm like, okay. So I start calling the emergency button, the emergency call. Um, it doesn't work. My first thought is, I'm going to sue you. Like, I am so mad. So I'm stuck in this elevator. Emergency call button doesn't work. Alarm isn't working. I'm in between two floors. I have one bar of reception. So I'm like, let me just call 911. I call 911, get them on the phone. And I thought that it would help, but it actually almost made it worse because the man was so casual. And I don't know if that's like, that's like their training, that's like they're supposed to like de-escalate and calm me down, but it just freaked me out. Because I was like, do you not care that I'm stuck in an elevator? I'm like, hey man, I'm stuck in an elevator. He's like, okay, okay, where are you? I was like, I'm here. He's like, okay, are there any other people in there? I'm like, no. He's like, okay, good. I was like, would you move faster if there were? <laughs> yes, there's a baby in here. Get here soon, right? I'm just like making stuff up. I'm like, what? And I'm like, okay, yeah, I'm stuck in here. He's like, okay, great. I'll send people to your location. I said, awesome. When? <laughs> he was like, he literally said, he said, um, I'm not really sure. He said, um, why not, sir? He said, well, traffic. I said, you're 911. You can stop traffic. This is me venting. I'm sorry. So I'm in this elevator stuck. He's like, yeah, they'll be there when they get there. The elevator's broken. I'm in between floors. I have no reception. I can't even get on Instagram to try and like distract myself. And I realized in that moment how short my hope was. So I was like, I'm going to die. And I was like in there for like 30 minutes. I'm like sitting in the corner. I'm just like, my mom what was the last thing I said to her. And like, I don't even know. Like, for my, like I'm, so, I'm hungry. I'm going to die hungry. Like, I just had all of these thoughts, right? <laughs> Finally, at the end of like 30 minutes, I hear this knock on the door. The firemen come. They like pull the doors open. And I was like, we're not out of the clear yet. I can still get cut in half walking through this elevator. So I like jump out of the elevator, get on the ground. The lady of the apartment, she's like, I'm so sorry. I'm like, I bet you are. <laughs> Finally get rescued out of the elevator. And in that moment, I think that that testified to this reality that the angels are testifying to the shepherds in Luke chapter 2, which is, in that moment, I did not need a teacher, a moral coach, a prophet. I needed a savior. And there was one person, one thing that could help me, and that thing had to be outside of my situation, come into my situation to save me. There was not one other thing I could do for myself. And that's what the angel is saying. Hey, you don't need another teacher. You don't need another law. You don't need another prophet. You don't need another miracle. You need a savior. And that is who Jesus is. Even in that moment when everything in the moment was telling me I'm not going to be saved. Every button is broken. The door is jammed. I have no reception. I just thought maybe, just maybe, if I call 911, they'll be able to help me. And 
it's so interesting because uh, uh, Tim Keller uh, says an amazing quote about faith. He says this, it is not the strength of your faith, but the object of your faith that actually saves you. He says, strong faith in a weak branch is fatally inferior to weak faith in a strong branch. Strong faith in a weak branch is fatally inferior to weak faith in a strong branch. I had a weak faith that 911 was going to come and help me and rescue me out of this situation. But the strength of my faith was not in how hard I believed, but who I believed in. Matthew, uh, Mark chapter 9, there's a story of Jesus. And he's done a lot of miracles and healed. And he comes to this town where there's a lot of unbelief going around. No one really believes in him. And he comes in this town where a father has a son who is being tormented by this demon being thrown in the fire, convulsing. Father goes to, the, goes to Jesus, says, please help me in this whole town. And Jesus looks around the town and he's like, where is everybody's faith? The man comes to Jesus, he says, please heal my son. And Jesus looks at the man and says, anything is possible for those that believe. And this man responds with potentially the most honest answer from a human in all of scripture. He says, Jesus, I believe. Help my unbelief. And isn't that a lot of us in the room? I believe Jesus, but Lord, help my unbelief. That is weak faith in a strong branch. I might not have all of the faith that I wish that I had, but all of the faith that I currently do have, I'm going to place in Jesus because I'm confident that it is not the strength of my faith that saves me. It is the strength of what my faith is in that saves me. In the same way that I had very little confidence of being saved, the fire department had very strong strength to save me. And in the same way that you might have very little confidence in Jesus, it is not the amount of faith that you bring to this room. It is what your faith is in. And if your faith is in Jesus, my friend, you're saved. You're saved. We come to Jesus for a lot of different reasons. We could come even in this moment to maybe appease God, to please God, to clear our conscience, to maybe get free from something. And all of those things, I truly believe that Jesus will help you in being free from. And I also want to lay it out for all of us to hear plain and simple that this moment is not about us giving something to God. This moment that we are gathering around is all about what God has given to us. If we come to church thinking, God, this is what I'm doing to make you happy, and this is my religious duty to appease you, we misunderstand the heart of God. Because the only reason that we are here is not because you're so good at seeking Jesus, it's because Jesus is so good at seeking you. That's why we're here. And all of us on the same playing field, that I am simply here by grace, that Jesus chose to save me. You see, Jesus is king, and Jesus wants to be your king. Whether you think Jesus is king or not does not change whether he is king. Jesus always moves through your will, and he will only go to a place that he is invited. And so Jesus will not force himself to be your king, 
And if he is your king, he will accept no other place except for first. So if Jesus is your king, he is only and ever in the captain's seat. Is Jesus your king? Is he your king? Because Jesus being your king means that he has total authority. That he is completely in charge. It is all about him. And, and, and in it, this, this, this reality that oftentimes what we do is we um, compartmentalize parts of our lives. Like we put certain energy and certain time and certain effort into certain places. Like we say, my work gets this amount of my energy. My family gets this amount of my time. My friends get this amount of my attention. My wife or my husband gets this amount of my love. My church gets this amount of my money. And we start compartmentalizing our lives into spaces, which might be true on the surface, but is surely not helpful in the kingdom of God. Because what that truly is, is that it is honestly fear masquerading as wisdom so that I don't have to give everything. And if I am trying to be under the total authority of Jesus while not giving him everything, that is not faith, my friends. You see, because total authority requires total faith. If you want Jesus to be your king and have total authority, you need to have total faith. I don't want you to be stricken and discouraged by that thought because I'm not saying that you need to have perfect faith. I'm saying total faith. Whatever faith that you have is all the faith that Jesus wants. Which means there is not an amount or a quality of faith that Jesus will not accept. That's good news. That means if you came into this place and you're saying, I don't have a lot of faith, Pastor. To be honest, I have a lot of trust issues. To be honest, I've been hurt a lot. To be honest, I'm really wishy-washy with my trust. I'm not consistent with it. Jesus is saying, I know some people won't accept that, but I will. Whatever faith that you have is all the faith that Jesus wants. You see... God having total authority over you means that you've given total faith unto him. And not just the best of it, but all of it. It's a misunderstanding of God's heart to think that he won't want the faith that you have. Listen, God already knows how much faith you have and the quality of it. Why would he despise it? He's not despised with how little your faith that you have or the quality of it. See, if you would give your total faith to Jesus, you would realize what a good father that he is. And you would realize that he gives really good gifts to his kids. And you would realize that he has a really good plan for your life. And you would realize that there might be troubles in this world, but he says, don't worry, son, and don't worry, daughter, because I have overcome the world. And if you would give your total faith to Jesus, friend, you would bloom in places that you didn't even know you had buds. Your life would flourish in a way that you didn't even know possible. And that only comes by giving total faith to King Jesus. The angel says a savior has been born. Jesus came to give salvation, ultimately. 
That's what he came to give. And, and we might have an idea of what like salvation means. I know it's like a churchy word, but being saved, salvation. If I asked, I think that most of us in this room, if I asked, what's your definition of salvation? Some of us would say something to the effect of, it's probably when good people, or maybe even Christians, when they die, they get to go be with God. That if I'm a good person or if I'm a Christian, when I die, I get to go be with God. That's probably what salvation means. And I would say that's not necessarily what the overarching theme of Scripture is about salvation. Scripture does not necessarily teach that being saved means that you, when you die, if you are a good person or if you're a Christian, you will just go to heaven to be with God, although you will. The overarching theme of salvation is actually this. Not that God, not that you go to be with God when you die, but that God died to be with you. You might think that's a trite little small detail until you realize that the gospel is not that you do things to get to God. It is that God did things to get to you. That is the gospel. It's not just simply good people go to be with God when they die. It's that God died to be with you. That's why the angel says, today a savior has been born. Today. It's not like you're saved when you die. It's that you are saved today. This is not a saving grace that applies when you get on your deathbed. This means that if you are in Christ Jesus, if you have trusted in Jesus and Jesus alone for the forgiveness of your sins, you have entered into a family with God by grace and through faith that Jesus has restored and redeemed you, actually given you the position of righteous. 2 Corinthians 5.21 says that God made him, Jesus, who knew no sin, to be sin for you so that you might become the righteousness of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. That means if you believe in Jesus for the forgiveness of your sins, you are no longer seen as you are. You are seen as righteous as Jesus is. Therefore, you are now in the family of God and have no reason to fear the judgment of God because he has judged you righteous as Jesus is righteous and he gives you his Holy Spirit so that you can live on earth the way that Jesus lived and then you will go to heaven to be with him. That is what salvation is. And Jesus came to save us, not just from like tiny things, not just from inconveniences. Jesus came to save us from our sins. I know there's this thought that we inherently are kind of overall, more likely than not, good people. It's not what the scriptures teach. The scriptures teach that we are actually dead in our trespasses. That we're not just bad, we're we're actually dead. And Jesus came to save us from our sins. It's, it's, It's this separation between God and man. That's what our sin does. It separates us from God. And Jesus came to die for us to save us. That's what the incarnation is all about. That this is the moment that Jesus came into the earth. This is the moment out of all of human history. This moment right here is the most important one to this date. A few years from the incarnation when God becomes man, We're going to have the cross and the resurrection. So important. And at this moment, the most important thing that has ever happened in all of human history is the incarnation. When God became man, 
God came to us. And it reminds me of the first time that God came to man. If you remember in the garden, the story of Adam and Eve, God created the garden and placed man and woman as his uh, ambassadors in the garden on earth to rule on earth and reign on earth as the Lord would reign in heaven. It's a partnership. He said, I'm going to place you here. I'm going to give you everything that you need. You can have all these trees and all this fruit and you have this amazing job and you're going to be in relationship with me all day, every day, unhindered, perfectly. The only thing is that you cannot eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. One thing, like any good relationship, there's a boundary that God sets. There's a responsibility that we have that says, do not go to the tree. Adam and Eve, they live their life. They're walking in the garden. All of a sudden, they see the tree and they see a serpent. The serpent talks to them and says, did God really say that you can't eat from the tree? (laughs) The reason why he said that is because if you eat from the tree, you're going to be like God. And God doesn't want you to be like God. So you know what you should do? You should eat from the tree. You'll be like him. And then you can make your own decisions. You know what the serpent's ultimate goal was? Is to sow this seed of doubt that simply this, God doesn't really love you. He's not really good. He doesn't actually have your best interest in mind. He's not actually looking out for you. You know what you should do? You should take trust from God, give it to yourself, and then you decide what's best. Adam and Eve eat from the tree. Their eyes are open. They realize what they've done. And the first thing that they do is they run and hide. Why? Because if you don't see Jesus rightly, you will interact with him wrongly. Adam and Eve didn't see him rightly. They were, they were tempted and then they sinned. And what happened is they said, man, God told us that if we eat from the tree, then we're going to surely die. We have to go. We have to hide. It's also ironic. Hide from God? What do you mean? How? What are you going to do? God ends up going into the garden. It's so interesting that the first thing that mankind does is hide from God. And the first thing that God does is search for man. He goes and he searches the garden. He says, where are you? They say, we're here. And he didn't ask that because he didn't know. He asked that because they didn't know. He talks to them and he says, what did you do? So we ate from the tree. Adam and Eve probably in this moment thought, this is it. We're going to die. This is over. And God says, you know what? You will have consequences. You will die a spiritual death, but not a physical one. And what God doesn't say is, how dare you? You ruined everything. Like, I I set you up in the perfect garden. Like, you had me, you had each other, you had everything that you need. Like, what are you thinking? Like, you, you know what? Go and sit in time out, think about what you did, and maybe I'll put you in the game later once you've actually come to terms with how bad you just messed up. You know, just ruined the world, right? No, no, no. (laughs) That's kind of funny. (laughs) You know what he said? He said, don't worry. I'll fix everything. You see, Adam and Eve didn't see God rightly, so they interacted with him wrongly. And what they thought, hear this, what they thought is God's pursuit of them was only to punish them. So they ran from God. But all with Adam and Eve knew that God pursues us not to punish us, but to actually show us mercy. 
Some of us in this room still think, I hear the footstep of God. I know Christmas is coming. I got to get in church. God's going to be so mad. Everyone's going to judge me. This is going to be horrible. No, friend. God does not pursue you to punish you. The reason why God is pursuing you is the same reason he pursued Adam and Eve in the garden. It's to show them mercy. And what if you think that you're running from your punishment, but you're actually running from your mercy? You're actually running from God's compassion towards you. And he's saying, if you would just stop and say, here I am, he would show you mercy. It's a savior, not just from a mistake, but from our sins. He's not pursuing you to punish you. He's pursuing you to show you mercy. You see, the king is here. And when they thought that they were going to die all around, Jesus actually flips it around somehow and gives them life. Why? Because whenever the king is here, the king gives life. Did you know that Jesus is obsessed with life? Like obsessed, like the titles that he gives himself, a lot of them have to do with life. Jesus calls himself the bread of life. Jesus calls himself the resurrection and the life. Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Jesus even says in John chapter 10, the enemy, yeah, he comes to steal, kill, and destroy. But I, Jesus, have come to give you life. And guess what? Not just life, but life more abundantly. You see, Jesus is obsessed with life and not just a better life. Some of us think Jesus, I add Jesus onto my life and he just makes me like upgrade a little bit. No, 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 friend. Jesus isn't coming to give you a better life. He's coming to give you a new life. You are not just going to be improved. You're going to be different. And that difference that Jesus gives in his life is in everything that he does. Why? Because when the king is here, Life is here. The king is here. And sometimes I wonder if some of us miss out on what God has for us as Christians because we are busy being a there and then people when God is a here and now God. We think life is always there, never here. I was on a flight recently. I want to show you this picture. And this flight had this really interesting ad that I think maybe in a maybe embarrassing way kind of sums up a little bit of our lives. It says, there's no place like somewhere else. <laughs> Which if you read it, you're kind of like, okay, it's a plane, I guess. Like maybe you're going on vacation and they're trying to get you excited. Probably an ad so you buy more flights because you always want to be there. And it may be from an advertising point of view that isn't necessarily a really bad idea. But when you think about the kingdom of God or maybe your personal life, it is a horrible mentality. There's no place like somewhere else. You know what that does? It's us. Because it always has us thinking that true life, the life that I want, is always there. It's always over the proverbial fence. It's always in the proverbial Jones's house. It's always where somebody else is. It's always when I make the next money. It's always when I get the next promotion. It's always when I have the next vacation. It's always when I get the next, always looking forward. And what it does, it makes you unable to experience the king here. Because you're, you're saying, there's no place like somewhere else. 
And if we say there's no place like somewhere else, we ignore Psalm 139, which says this reality, that God says, if I ascend to the highest heaven, God, you're there. If I make my bed in Sheol or in Hades, you're there. If I go out to the uttermost parts of the sea, then you're there. Everywhere I go, you are there. There's no place where I can go away from your presence, God. Which means if God is everywhere, doesn't that make sense that God would also be here? And if we are always saying life is there, we forsake God's life here. Let me tell you, friends, Jesus has life and life abundant for you, not then and there, but here and now. It is not about you becoming a better person. You stop sinning, you getting free from that addiction, you getting a better family, you getting your life in order. It is the here and now because where the king is, and if he is here, Emmanuel, God with us, guess what? Life is here. Some of us, as I close, just consider, okay, well, if God is here, if life is here, if the king is here, and if he wants my total trust and my total authority, okay, then, well, then what am I supposed to do? What do I do? Well, Matthew, 20, 20, Matthew 22 gives us a great example of how we're supposed to live in the reality that the king is here. Matthew 22, some man comes up to Jesus in Matthew 22, 36 through 40, and says, teacher, What's the greatest commandment in the law? And this is such an interesting question because some of us are so familiar with the commandments. We're saying, okay, don't covet, don't commit adultery, like don't have any idols before me, like okay, don't lie, like okay, I get that, we shouldn't do those things. And it's really interesting because God does command us to do things, but Jesus kind of switches it up here. And he says, actually, you shall love the Lord your God with all of your heart, with all of your soul, and with all of your mind. This is the great and first commandment, and the second is like it, that you shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all of the law and the prophets. See, Jesus is saying, if there is one greatest commandment that Jesus asks you to do, it is simply this. Our response to what Jesus has done is to love him with everything that you have. And out of that place, God is pleased. We honor his coming to us. But the interesting thing is that it doesn't necessarily end there. As I was reading in the scriptures, Christianity is honestly, I found so simple. Because we have one commandment to really do, love God. But did you know that Jesus also has a commandment? And I don't mean that Jesus gives us commandments, although he does, but Jesus himself has received a commandment. Did you know that? You see, we have a commandment, which is to love God, but Jesus also has a commandment. And if you were guessing, let me tell you, it's not to teach, although he did. It's not to heal, although he did. It's not to do miracles, although he did. It's not to feed people, although he did. It's not to love, although he did. It culminates all of those things in John chapter 12, verse 49 and 50. For Jesus says, for I have not spoken on my own authority, 
But the Father who sent me has himself given me a commandment, what to say and what to speak. And I know that this commandment is eternal life. What I say, therefore, I say as the Father has told me. You see, Jesus' commandment is one simple thing to give you eternal life. And oh, did he ever succeed. Jesus' mission and his one commandment from the Father, he says, if you don't do anything else, the one thing that I'm asking you to do, Jesus, is to give eternal life. And Jesus, the way that he does it is that he points to himself. He gives himself You see, if there was another source of eternal life, I would tell you to go and pursue that source. But friend, there isn't. It's like what the disciples said in John chapter 6. Everybody started deserting Jesus. And Jesus says, are you going to leave too? And they said, where are we going to go? You have the words of eternal life. It doesn't exist anywhere else. You're the only one who has it. And friend, if eternal life existed somewhere else, trust me, we would preach that. But it doesn't. It exists in one place, in one person, in one man, and that man's name is Jesus. And trust me, he has exceeded everything you've dreamed. He has given eternal life. He is inviting you into eternal life. All the world and what they promise, it can never deliver on what it says that it can. It will always overpromise. It will always underdeliver. But Jesus Christ is the only one who says what he says and does what he does. He will never go back on his word and his word will never return void. And guess what? In this moment, if you're saying, so what am I supposed to do? Jesus's commandment is to give you eternal life. Your commandment is to love him for doing so. Would you pray with me? Lord Jesus, we do love you for your eternal life. We really do love you for your eternal life. Holy Spirit, right now, God, throw out the religion for all the people who have grown up in church, church kids, mom, deacon, dad, pastor, grandma, always drug me to church, all of us who have heard this story so many times, Lord Jesus, drop the scales from our eyes. Let us see you right now, that we would see you rightly. And Lord Jesus, that we would receive the eternal life that only you offer. And we would love you for it.